as I think back in the day when applications went through tons of cycles and from code complete to production could have been six months or a year, I think developers actually did take a bit less responsibility for things like how do you configure this application in production? How do you scale it in production? How do you promote it between environments? And I think that's all front and center now when the line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. That was Tolga Tarhan. Now, despite having the honor of being Cloud Talk's first returning guest, Tolga is also the corporate CTO at Rackspace. And as you'll hear in this episode, Tolga comes from a deep application modernization background and has lived the process from the chair of a developer, a team lead, and a business owner. Now, don't think that Tolga's current lofty position has taken him away from the tech. As you'll hear, he's still as close to it as ever. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Deverter. So I was having a really interesting conversation about a week ago with some of the technologists around the shop here, and we were joking, seems like we're always joking about this, but that some words just become relegated to being buzzwords, even though they started with, with being such a valid uh, you know, part of our lives. And unfortunately, the word DevOps gets pulled into that. And here to help me sort of pull that apart and talk about, you know, the, 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 the goodness and the badness of it all is, uh, is Rackspace's corporate CTO, Tolga Taran. Tolga, welcome to the show again. Jeff, thanks for having me. Yeah, second time. Here I am. There you are. You, in fact, we were just talking before. You are the first um, repeat who has got his own episode two times. We had somebody on a panel, but I don't know if that's going to count. No, no, I'm, I'm claiming it. Yep, you're right. <laughs> that's awesome. So, so DevOps. Oh, the buzzword that is DevOps. In fact, we've joked about how we're going to create some interesting collateral around buzzwords. That's, that's to show up later. But, uh, you know, what happened? What went wrong? It was it's such a good idea in the word DevOps. What went wrong? Gosh, doesn't it happen to all of the good buzzwords, though? I mean, the word cloud, like everything is cloud uh, now, even, even your desktop software somehow. Um, right. or, you know, the word edge is going through the same kind of trouble today. I think what happens is these words that are exciting, that have a chance to change how we do things, it's very natural to co-opt those words into, um, you know, everything you do. It's it's a good sales and marketing tactic, and unfortunately, it does create kind of kind of washes the word out, and you kind of lose the meaning. Right. Well, and what we're going to talk about here a little bit later is how in a truly functioning DevOps team, what that team structure, what the positive impacts are to how that is a whole part of making this be successful. But not all teams are poised for success when they run down this road. I asked you earlier, you know, what's an example? When did you see it fail? Let's start with the negative example. Yeah. So, I mean, I've seen where, um, where people say they're doing DevOps or they say they're doing agile and you may even hear this word wagile. It's kind of like waterfall <laughs> and agile mixed together. Um, and unfortunately that's not a great recipe. And what happens is you typically have an organization that has tons of functional teams already. So they have like a team that does UX and a team that does requirements and a team that does development and a team that does testing and one that just does kind of infrastructure builds and, and maybe um, automation build outs. And then, you know, some other sustainment team that runs it in production. And the problem was when you, when you do an agile and DevOps kind of transformation, but you don't actually properly refactor all of that, right. you could end up with an org where maybe the dev team is operating agile. They tend to be the ones 
that most quickly adopt these methodologies. But then the teams on both sides of them, the left and right of them in this process, uh, are still operating functionally. And so I've had teams that were going to the cloud and they were going there in a pretty dramatically modern way, like you know, all serverless, for example. Yeah. And they would adopt all these uh, processes that made sense in that environment. I mean, how you build and deploy, everything is by definition immutable in those environments. But yet when it was time to deploy, they had to work with teams whose processes were designed for a different model. And oh. that, that disconnect actually makes it a lot worse. It probably makes it worse than either model uh, would be. Um, and it creates awkward things like uh, asking permission from the infrastructure team to create a table in something like DynamoDB, where like, you know, because they're used to uh, launching a database is a big deal. Launching a database has tons of DBAs involved and very clear requirements to find and how much performance do we need from this database and what hardware should it run on? And those processes just don't map when a developer says, I need a table to store my users in DynamoDB. Like it's just a button right. they need to push. And so yeah. that's the that's some of the failure scenarios that I've seen quite a bit. Well, and you know, when when a lot of those technologies even started to come around inside of big enterprises, you know, these were the ones, these these original people were like, hey, come on, get with the program. We're using the database now. It's gonna make all the world better. And and all of a sudden you end up with all of this history and formulated processes that are so rigid that they they just won't bend. And when a new process comes along, they then become the ones who are kind of holding things up. And so it's a really interesting point you make that even if one community adopts it, you really sort of have to have everybody come along uh, for the party or the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. As we functionalized IT, I guess, you know, two decades ago, um, and you had specialists, you know, I'm a network guy, I'm a security guy, I'm, a, I'm an application guy or a database guy. I think the way those teams um, manage their workload was by putting rules in place that said, well, to deploy X, you must talk to this team. Yeah. And those processes are still there today. And the, the problem is it's no longer a functional model we're working in. It's, you know, all these things are API driven. They're in your automations. They're deployed as part of your app. And really you want to deploy them as a whole set to each environment. So to dev yeah. environments and to staging and prod. And it, it just doesn't kind of flow through the system the same way. And we need to move on from call it preemptive kind of blocking type controls where you can't do X without a certain team's oversight to more of an advisory and monitoring level where, hey, experts do need to help you optimize how you use data and databases, but they don't need to be a gatekeeper to you creating that table in your dev environment, right? right. We, need to, we need to kind of adapt to controls at different points along the way. Yeah. So I was working, this is way many years ago in the early part of my career, but I was working with um, this company. I was back when I was in the SharePoint world. And I think there were a lot of characteristics uh, of SharePoint that are similar to what we think of in the cloud today. There's an underlying database that is very malleable that you can handle through the interface or through an API. Security is managed natively inside of it and, and all the other things. So up until this point in this organization, you know, if somebody's bringing a web app in, you know, we could still pull in the DBAs, we could still pull in the infrastructure, we still pull in the security experts. And, and, and when we did the kickoff meeting and brought these communities in and they started raising their hands going, well, who's going to control when you get a new table? Well, I could just create a list and it goes on their own. And, and the, it was example after example. And, oh, they were so upset. Um, 
And security was, was actually one of the big groups because how can you manage your own security? You're clearly not able to. Um, but afterwards, one of them came up and he says, okay, we realize we have to do this. So how do we get with the program here and turn these into guiding principles as opposed to hard and fast rules that you guys can then implement? And so that was, yeah. that, that was pretty turning point for them. Well, and as you, as you get better and better at this, go even further and use tools that monitor for configuration errors. And so if you have a rule that says, you know, you must never do X or must never do Y, you could, you know, put a design review process in to, to try to catch that and slow down every project. Or you could publish the guidelines, do the training, get developers and teams on board with those rules yeah. and put in policy compliance automation that looks for those violations I've seen really great examples of this where we've got a customer that has this um, sophisticated methodology where like if you make a mistake, for example, you open a port to the world that shouldn't be open to the world. Yeah. It catches it, sends you and your leader an email, says, this, hey, this port probably wasn't supposed to be open. Here's a, a ticket that's been opened if you need an exception. And it just fixes it. But it doesn't prevent you from deploying your you know, applications. You, I don't have to go ask for someone to look first. Instead, it'll, it'll monitor it along the way. You know, it brings up a really interesting point. I was talking to actually one of the founders of Rackspace, and he's involved in a startup today. And, and the developers that he has there, um, they had this really proud moment about six months ago when they broke the application. They actually had a party because they broke the application because one of the developers in one of their sprints had published something out and it broke it. And he was so excited about that because it was teaching responsibility to some of these developers who really had just sort of relied on it to being, quote unquote, somebody else's job in the past. What a lesson. Yeah, you know, Jeff, that's a really good point. As I think back in the day when applications went through tons of cycles and from code complete to production could have been six months or a year, I think developers actually did take a bit less responsibility for things like, how do you configure this application in production? How do you scale it in production? How do you promote it between environments? And I think that's all front and center now when the line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. Right. Such an incredible thing. And all of this, of course, plays into how um, these teams now have to reformulate. How do you build the right team? And then how do you build the interaction around other teams that exist. So, so let's dig in a little bit. In a DevOpsy sort of world, what does a team look like? Well, wait a minute. Before we even say that, we haven't defined what DevOps is. Let's talk about DevOps. Let's make sure that that Tolga gets to draw a line in the sand of what DevOps mean, and it's not the buzzword of what we think it means. <laughs> oh, well, you heard it here, folks. I'm defining it officially for on behalf of everybody. You're defining um, it for the next 20 minutes in our conversation. All right. Well, I'll, I'll take it. So um, here's what it's not. It is not a title. It's not a job title. Uh, if your job title is DevOps, it's actually a pretty good indicator that your company has not adopted DevOps um, <laughs> because it's not someone's job. It's, it's, it's like, you know, I think this is more obvious today. Um, if, if I gave someone the title Scrum Engineer for a software engineer, you'd be like, that doesn't yeah. make sense. Like, what, what does that mean? Well, it's the same thing when you call someone DevOps Engineer, right? Um, yeah. Now, what is it? I think it is a series of process changes that apply the agile techniques that we've learned in software development to the rest of the life cycle. So mm. I think most people now understand agile software development. I think it's very rare outside of sort of like spaceships. And even then, I think, even then I think SpaceX might be using agile methodologies. But uh, outside of those very, very controlled environments, no one's really doing a waterfall dev approach anymore. Everyone mm -hmm. is caught on to the benefits of agile. So this is about bringing those same disciplines to infrastructure, configuration, updates, scaling, 
but not in an isolated way. When right. you're done, the agile processes of your dev team and the DevOps processes for your operations, um, they come together into one thing. Like at the end, you shouldn't be able to say the boundary between the two. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. So, so then when we start thinking about building a team and think about the team in the organization, not just here's my group of developers, but what do we have? What kind of personalities do I have to pull in for it to, to really function? As opposed to the example you gave earlier, where your dev and your dev guys were all um, handling, uh, going, doing things in, a, in an agile fashion, but the rest of the org wasn't. What happens to happen? That's right. So you, you need to go end to end. So, you know, let's assume that the dev team has done the front end of this. So your, your requirements and UX and developers are all part of the agile team and your testers too. So now what we're going to do is we're going to add in people with operations expertise. So somebody whose job typically might've been to configure that application in production or mm -hmm. to scale it or to back it up or to promote it between environments, right? Infrastructure engineers. It might be yeah. database folks, might be network folks, might be security folks. And what you're going to do is add those disciplines into the two pizza team. So your mm. two pizza team that was um, your dev and test and requirements and UX folks, they now have people who are experts in infrastructure. And those folks are doing two things, three things maybe. They're adding non-functional requirements that everybody needs to then go and implement about how the app might behave and scale and how it might be ephemeral and immutable that always requires some external config that you may not have built into the app on day one. And so they're subject matter experts and how that's going to look and work. Number two, they might actually and should actually write the code for those parts mm. of the application, right? They're, they're not just sysadmins that only know how to work through the UI, but rather they're going to actually do sort of infrastructure-focused, operational-focused code that's going to become part of the code base. That might be uh, it might be as simple as some Terraform or it might actually be in the application code uh, to read external configs. Right? Well, I also was going to ask you, I mean, is, is, is an infrastructure person who's listening to this and we have a lot of, a lot of IT decision makers who are listening to this, but, but you know, do we have a, a sysadmin who's freaking out going, I got to be a dev now? What's that all about? I think you do. I, th I think that, I think that you do. Now, look, uh, it's, it's one thing to sit, to be deep inside the application and, and to spend your days headphones on writing code, right? Mm -hmm. That's a software engineer's job. Uh, an infrastructure engineer, an engineer who's an infrastructure person on a dev team, they're still spending a lot of their time watching how these things operate, collecting metrics, looking for ways to improve, making sure that all the automation is working and that backups are there and that the application is healthy. But why not take those great ideas you have when you think to yourself, man, if the dev team would just expose this new monitoring endpoint, I could do a better job running the app. Why not get to a point where you can start to build some of that yourself? And right. you know, you're you're part of the broader dev team, so you have the support of the architects and engineers there. You don't have to carry it on your own back, but I think it, you don't draw a boundary that says, "Look, I don't touch the code." It, it's healthy for you to touch the code. Yeah, it is. All right, so we, we're adding security into this. We got the 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 sysadmin folks who are going to be part of it. Who else needs to be part of this team? Oh boy. Um, and making sure that we still have enough food to feed them with only two pizzas available. Apparently. That's right. And you know what? You bring up a good point. So you're not going to be able to put every discipline, every sub-discipline, every piece of expertise on the team because you'd have 30 people uh, before you had a single actual core developer on the project, right? That, that's not going right. to scale. It's going to look like an NFL team with all their, all their kind of special teams. Um, right. What to do instead is still have centers of excellence or whatever you want to call them for these yeah. disciplines, for infrastructure, for reliability, for security, 
but you want to have representatives from those on these dev teams. And yeah. they can still reach back into their colleagues to the deep expertise that exists in the org. Right. They don't need to be an island. And so as a result, I actually think most dev teams should have just a couple of folks, um, kind of one or two focused on infrastructure. And then depending on the app, you know, one focused on security. Um, it may even be a shared resource across a couple of teams. Got but it. the important thing is that these resources feel and act like they're part of the dev team. They're not a check and balance on the dev team. They're not an approver on the dev team. They literally are just part of the dev team. They, they get all the ceremonies. They have as much ownership over the outcome as the rest of the dev team does. Okay. So it makes me think also, so if we, we build one of these teams, these two pizza teams, and they've got all, either all the direct people that need on that team or access to um, the, the guiding people who are inside the organization, the deep thinkers in those specific disciplines, you know, how with having all that there, it's obvious that 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 is what is going to certainly help the development lifecycle happen faster with speed. But think about that in, in the context of a non-technical team. Does this methodology apply? So that's what's really cool about this Agile stuff is we pretend it was invented for software development. But <laughs> the root of much of this is Kanban, which was actually developed at Toyota for hmm. manufacturing. So yeah. you know they wanted to gate the number of items that could be in each state. And they developed this Kanban methodology around it. And, you know, I think you can trace back lots of today's Agile processes to that starting point. And so not only can you use it for non, non-dev teams, non-technology teams, I think it started there. And I think it's an effective way to manage uh, responsibility. So the big change, I think, that you have to embrace is rather than having people with functional jobs, each doing their little part of a bigger project, you actually take those people and put them onto one project together. Right, right. So you, you represent the cross-functional elements inside the project where their primary home is a shared outcome, whatever that shared outcome is, yeah. um, even if they've got teams behind them that, that go, that are functional. Now, isn't that, I mean, it's, it's really disruptive to the way we're used to business happening. And, and obviously the, the IT world has adopted this in a pretty significant way. We have easy ways to identify when companies are doing it right and when they're and when they're not, but you you called it out right there, Tolga, and you said they're they're being driven by the output of their functional team that they've been put on, as opposed to how much time did I sit in my seat today? Was I seen in the right places today? Did I fulfill the quarterly re, you know thing that I was supposed to get done for my review? But being driven by specific output. So my question or my thought here is, has COVID had a significant impact in accelerating this? As I sort of think that it has. Because everyone's sitting at home doing their job, being measured by what they're delivering as opposed to necessarily often they were in their chair. Yeah, you know, and I think there's probably a couple things at play here. One, you're right that like the metrics we typically use have been kind of upended. And the other big reason it's changed in COVID times is actually because um, collaborating with other teams has gotten easier. Mm. So I would actually, I had a conversation the other day that said, some types of collaboration have gotten much harder. For example, deeply technical whiteboarding sessions are very hard to do over Zoom. Like, yeah. you know, there's just not a replacement for a whiteboard and a marker and a room and a pizza. <laughs> but um, so that's gotten harder. But but simpler collaboration uh, has gotten a lot easier because nobody has an in-person meeting. So you're never the one guy on the phone. Think about how awkward it was if 
you're working with a team in a different geography and you're the one guy on the phone. It never worked well. So I think what we're seeing now is easier collaboration leading to it being easier for functional roles to actually behave as part of a project team and to focus in on what that project team is doing. But at the same time, I think we're seeing some innovative capability lost due to the lack of like sort of high bandwidth in-person communication. A hundred percent, 100%. So um, interesting point that you make around some pieces of collaboration being so much more difficult to do. I heard another example where you had some, some devs who are working on um, a, a robotic application and they really just all needed to be around the one device that was having the problem so that they could solve that problem together. But while there are the niche areas, I'll call them niche areas, I think there are less of those than there are the massive increases in our, our, our smaller aspects of collaboration. And, and like you, I'm particularly excited to hopefully see a major change in behavior once we start to go back to an office with whatever that looks like that will take those folks who aren't in the room a little more seriously or a little more cautiously. Well, and the big disruption that we're all waiting for that I think someone needs to do is is merging that physical world collaboration environment with the virtual one. So like, yeah. you know, and I feel like as, as early as the late 90s, there were these, you know, virtual whiteboard type things with, you know, that could, they were these big expensive projectors that act like a whiteboard. Yeah. None of it's, none of it has really gotten to where it needs to be, but it's ripe for disruption. Yeah, I saw a really interesting demo that Microsoft did about a year ago, which was all built on their Teams environment, but with a 360-degree camera and HoloLens, you basically had a virtual conference room that you were, everybody was sitting around, a conference table you were sitting around. And, uh, and to the point a little even farther is that you, of course, had to log into that with your devices. And so then you even had a transcript of everything that happened from each individual and was capturing uh, action items and all the notes and all the things. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like sci-fi um, because probably it works well today in a demo, controlled demo. When yeah. that becomes a mainstay, when that becomes something that anybody can use, including you know, non-technical executives, I think yeah. that's when we'll see the biggest change in collaboration. I totally agree. I totally agree. And it's going to require some more hardware. Um, but this this whole COVID thing has been such a forcing function. All right. So, so Agile is a good thing, um, enabled by DevOps uh, capabilities, and that is a mindset. Uh, and as a goal, um, when can you tell when somebody's not necessarily doing it right? Where do you, you know, what, what words do you hear? What behaviors do you notice? You know, it's interesting. Um, so going back to the technical domain, I've, one of my trigger words it, when I'm talking to a customer about a migration yep. um, is when they say, well, how are we going to do patching? When I hear <laughs> that, okay, let's, let's step back because if we've talked about all these immutable processes, all these ephemeral instances, what we should have understood by now is that we're going to build automation and that automation is going to deploy software. And we're hopefully never going to touch the deployed software. So we didn't talk about this earlier in the definition of DevOps, and it's probably not strictly part of the definition, but I do think good DevOps often is ephemeral and immutable infrastructure. Yeah. As a result, it's never patched. It's simply replaced. Mm. So that's that's one of my big trigger words. The other one is when you talk about um, approval processes. So there there should be approval processes for for applications that that um, that are critical that are mm. that have sensitive data. Um, but those approval processes need to be built around and compatible with these DevOps ones. Not um, you know, hey, the cab meets every third Wednesday, and we authorize deployments every third Friday, those kinds of models, again, they break the sort of move fast, 
deliver features faster. They break those models. And so mm-hmm. by no means am I saying we don't want to be careful and calculated and have people reviewing. I think that's very important. But I think we can start to bring those review processes and approvals closer to our code, actually, because yeah. all of our infrastructure is represented as code, then I don't need to review a document that has the deployment plan and a document with the rollback plan. I can just actually review the proposed changes to the code, to the infrastructure automation code. Right, right. Perfect. So you've been messing around in this whole cloud native, DevOpsy, agile world for just a couple of weeks now? No, a little longer than that. A little longer than that. So, so you're, you you were with Annika. You came to Rackspace. We're very thankful for that. But you know, tell us about some of the stuff you're doing before that, because what I also want you to put in the back of your brain, don't answer the question yet, is the folks listening, probably not everyone has started down this road yet. And how do they take some of those first steps? But let's start by understanding a little bit about your pedigree and and why you uh, – are okay to give us this, these examples. <laughs> what qualifies me? Exactly. So, um, by trade, so I'm a software engineer, but starting in 2009, I went into the business of software engineering consulting. Um, mm. Start a small company with a partner. We, um, we focused on building products and we did it with, a, uh, with these modern approaches, right? So we were agile. We used all the um, modern ways to... to build user interfaces and to design user experiences and then to reduce that to, to actual software. We actually did it um, with onshore developers, which in the year 2009 was was actually novel, right? That yeah. might have been the height of the offshoring um, kind of model then. And so uh, we helped a bunch of customers actually transform to think more agile as we did product dev together with them. And these mm. were big, you know, Fortune 500s that at least the teams we were working with and the parts of the business we were working with were transforming. Now, I'm, I'm proud to look back sort of, you know, the year 2020, 11 years later, I think everyone has gotten there. I think um, everyone has, has got that agility. But my, yeah, my background has been building uh, services businesses since 2009. You know, then Annika came next and then Rackspace uh, is where I am now. Excellent. So... Maybe not everybody is there yet. Uh, and especially with some of the customers that I've talked to, I can tell you not everybody is there yet. How does somebody start down this road, uh, aside from reading a blog or, or listening to this podcast? So you bring up, it kind of reminds me of my past. I remember um, sort of in 2005, trying to, trying to manage projects, uh, leading dev teams, kind of half agile, probably actually the waggle thing I accused others of, probably doing that. Um, and, and I did, you'd study online, you'd read, you'd read blogs, you'd read books, and it feels like nothing, uh, would really give you the whole picture. It was all very theoretical. It was all like, when everything goes perfectly, here's how you do it. But, but that first step was really hard. I think what I learned is that making it overly academic actually is going to be what gets in your way. Mm. Forget what perfect looks like. Forget what good looks like for a second. Start with what works for your team. Right. It, the whole point of Agile is to be flexible. So, I'll give you a couple of things you should um, definitely do, and then uh, and then you should figure the rest out. And what's right for your team, there is no no one can tell you the formula because everyone is doing this slightly differently. But here are a couple tenants, kind of Agile, and therefore for for DevOps, your iterations, sprints, whatever you want to call them, need to be a fixed duration. They need to be immovable. Um, Because the whole point is to force things into the time box and to start to learn what fits in the time box and what doesn't. So one of the very first mistakes people make 
is they extend the time box because they're running late. Don't mm. do that. That's like the first tenant. The second tenant is that your whole team needs to attend all the ceremonies. So like you need to have the daily standups. You need to have the, the, the backlog grooming and the sprint reviews. And everybody needs to be present and participating in those meetings. It's not something that like two guys go off and do because then the rest of the team isn't bought in to what's, what's being done. Uh, and then I think you need a consistent way to measure throughput. So story points, t-shirt sizes, dog breeds, doesn't matter what you use, but you need a way to size up the work in the backlog and you need to not modify um, how you estimate. So what I mean is when you start, your estimates will be way wrong. It's okay. What you should probably not do is try to re rechange how you estimate. Just humans are, are creatures of habit. You will always be wrong. Mm-hmm. What's better instead is to actually um, let it self-correct. So if you start off thinking that a large story, let's say just use t-shirt, t-shirt sizes here, a large story is going to be um, two days of work if that's where you start, but you find out after four sprints that those large stories take four days of work, great. Keep estimating those as large stories. Just now you know those take four days of work and you'll take fewer stories in your backlog. And yeah. and that self-correction is what gets you to a predictable velocity. So those Got are sort it. of my like, starter's guide, I think, to this stuff. All right. So if we draw it back around as we think about not just software dev, but uh, cloud transformation, helping a customer transform their organization by utilizing the technologies available to us from the hyperscale clouds. So if a company back in 2009 starts to get this right, they start to get the agile development methodology right, how much does the cloud actually accelerate that? Because now we're not waiting for you know, UPS shipments or FedEx shipments of servers but we're now able to get, you know, we have the world of technology literally at the ends of your fingers. Yeah, that's actually a really good, uh, really good point. So the reason software agile development took place in the early 2000s or could take place is it didn't need very much hardware, right? Most yeah. development's done locally on local, local machines. Um, you couldn't go to, it was harder to go to DevOps until we had the ability to spin up new resources and shut them down and change them mm-hmm. um, at, at a whim without sending someone to the data center, without ordering hardware. So the cloud is the enabling tech here because I can just say this instance will exist and this is what it's it'll look like. It'll be this size and this much memory or this API gateway endpoint will route to this serverless function. I could just declare those to be true, deploy my um, declaration and it will be true. So that, that ability to do that is what lets infrastructure engineers operate like software engineers. They can just mm-hmm. type it in their text editor and, and simply typing it makes it true versus mm-hmm. in the past where you may have typed the plan, but someone had to go to the data center and like, you know, rack and stack the stuff. It was a very different model. And, and isn't it uh, interesting that in our 30 minute conversation, we talked about the cloud for about a minute and a half. And that's all really that technology plays into a true agile transformation. Granted, there's tools, granted, there's editors, granted, there's other things, but it's people in process. And, and that's the most difficult piece of making this change. If you can cross that chasm, then technology becomes plug and play. Yeah, look, the technology is an enabler. It's it's more tools in the toolkit. Now, I believe these are extraordinary tools that will have um, that will change the the future of technology. But if you don't apply them right, like if you you can take the back of a screwdriver and use it like a hammer, it won't work real well. But right. you can do it. So what we need are you know we need to use the tools the way they were designed. And I would argue they were mostly designed to be used with automation. They were designed um, to be used immutably with ephemeral kind of environments. 
and they were used they were designed for this agile DevOps methodology. If you don't adopt those on the way to the cloud, you actually don't get to leverage the full power, the full innovative capability of the cloud. I can think of no better way to send this recording out than ending on that last quote. Uh, Incredible. So um, we live in extraordinary times, and I don't mean to belittle the amount of of power that exists at the end of your fingertips. And I mentioned, I said, you know, hey, we only talked about technology for a minute and a half. Well, we could talk about a rocket ship for a minute and a half. And that's still a whole lot of technology. That's right. Um, but the point is you can really misuse that technology if you don't use it, like you said, in a way that it was intended to be used. Tolga, thanks so much for being on the program today. Any last words as you kick people out into this agile world? No, look, I think my biggest takeaway would be uh, d- don't be afraid of this change. This change, when you're done with it, will make your life better. And I hope everyone takes takes the chance to go and adopt sort of agile and DevOps and adopt the cloud in this more modern way. Awesome. Tolga, thanks so much. Everyone, thank you for listening today. We sincerely appreciate it and uh, have a great day. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. So if your title is DevOps, chances are you aren't doing DevOps quite right. The cloud is capable of so much more than we ask of it. The challenges of the cloud really don't have much to do with the tech at all, but how we as humans rally around it. Well, and isn't that the point of this podcast? Providing access to great thinkers like Tolga who have lived the cloud life and lived to tell the tale. Now, if you haven't already done this, perhaps you would consider subscribing to this podcast on your device. You see, we turn one of these out every week. And that way, if you subscribe, you'll have the latest episode ready to go whenever you need it. So should we ever have the opportunity to sit in traffic as we commute to an office again, you'll be ready to go. Speaking of our latest episodes, here's what we have in store for you next week. Teams allow you to get a company or an organization or an opportunity, and then you can be going, you can be great in all these aspects because you're not relying on one person to be great in all these aspects, right? And I think that that sometimes we like in the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just gonna tell you right now, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you know, Jeff Bezos, they didn't do it by themselves. They're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. That's next time on Cloud Talk.